Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We have a very exciting show for you today. We're discussing something that definitely isn't discussed enough, race in Britain. Uh, it's a very big topic. This is just an introduction, but we feel it's an important topic. Um, and we're very lucky to have Rennie at a Lodge as our author guest, whose first book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, was published last month and is taking Britain by storm. Octavia, do you want to introduce Rennie? Sure thing. Rennie at a Lodge is a London-based award-winning journalist. She's written for publications including The New York Times, The Voice, The Daily Telegraph, The Guardian. She's the winner of an MHP 30 to Watch Award and was chosen as one of the top 30 young people in digital media by The Guardian in 2014. She contributed to The Good Immigrant, um, which we've discussed on the show before with Selena Godden, who's another contributor. And Marlon James called her debut book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, essential. Um, so yeah, we're super excited to, to have her on. Yeah, and it's a fab book. I think we both really, really liked it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. As you can probably tell from our interview as well. We have another very special guest today, um, Kishani Wajiranta, who is here in the studio with us right now. Hi, Kishani. Hi. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, Kishani, just to give you some background, has worked in publishing for five years. Um, we sometimes email each other about publishing stuff, which is very <laughs> exciting. Um, she's currently working at the literary imprint Picador Books, which is part of Macmillan, having previously worked at Faber and Faber and Penguin Random House. She is also a long-standing contributing editor at The White Review, a quarterly literary magazine available in print and online, which I know I think both Octavia and I are readers of yeah, and yeah. admirers yeah. of. Um, who had a party last night. Yeah, which was incredible. Kylie's Bennett was amazing. Cool. We can talk about that. Actually, we can't talk about no, that. We, we don't have time. But anyway, great. <laughs> um, Kish is going to be joining us when we interview Rennie and also for our wider discussion about race in Britain in the context of literature. So from Zadie Smith to Marlon James to Bell Hooks. Um, and we will also, as usual, be giving you some book recommendations at the end. So stay tuned. Rennie Edo Lodge, thanks so much for coming on Literary Friction. So we have asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind uh, setting it up for us? Okay, so the book title and general gist is based on uh, a post that I wrote on my website about two, two and a half, maybe three and a half years ago now, and it was called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. I'm no longer engaging with white people on the topic of race. Not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates their experience. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. This emotional disconnect is a conclusion of living a life oblivious to the fact that their skin colour is the norm and all others deviate from it. At best, white people have been taught not to mention that people of colour are different in case it offends us. They truly believe that the experiences of their life as a result of their skin colour can and should be universal. I just can't engage with the bewilderment and the defensiveness as they try to grapple with the fact that not everyone experiences the world in the way that they do. They've never had to think about what it means, in power terms, to be white. So any time they're vaguely reminded of this fact, they interpret it as an affront. Their eyes glaze over in boredom or widen in indignation. Their mouths start twitching as they get defensive. Their throats open up as they try to interrupt, itching to talk over you but not really listen because they need to let you know that you've got it wrong. 
The journey towards understanding structural racism still requires people of colour to prioritise white feelings. Even if they can hear you, they're not really listening. It's like something happens to the worst as they leave our mouths and reach their ears. The words hit a barrier of denial and they don't get any further. That's the emotional disconnect. It's not really surprising because they've never known what it means to embrace a person of colour as a true equal with thoughts and feelings that are as valid as their own. Watching The Colour of Fear by Lee Manoir, I saw people of colour break down in tears as they struggle to convince a defiant white man that his words are enforcing and perpetuating a white racist standard on them. All the while, he stared obliviously, completely confused by this pain, at best trivialising it, at worst ridiculing it. I've written before about this white denial being the ubiquitous politics of race that operates on its inherent invisibility. So I can't talk to white people about race anymore because of the consequent denials, awkward cartwheels and mental acrobatics that they display when this is brought to their attention. Who really wants to be alerted to a structural system that benefits them at the expense of others? I can no longer have this conversation because we're often coming at it from completely different places. I can't have a conversation with them about the details of a problem if they don't even recognise that the problem exists. Worse still is the white person who might be willing to entertain the possibility of said racism, but who thinks we enter this conversation as equals. We don't. Not to mention that entering into conversation with defiant white people is frankly a dangerous task for me. As the heckles rise and the defiance grows, I have to tread incredibly carefully because if I express frustration, anger or exasperation at their refusal to understand, they will tap into their pre-subscribed racist tropes about angry black people who are a threat to them and their safety. It's very likely that they'll then paint me as a bully or an abuser. It's also likely that their white friends will rally round them, rewrite history and make the lies the truth. Trying to engage with them and navigate their racism is not worth that. Amid every conversation about nice white people feeling silenced by conversations about race, there is a sort of ironic and glaring lack of understanding or empathy for those of us who have been visibly marked out as different for, the, for our entire lives and live the consequences. It's truly a lifetime of self-censorship that people of colour have to live. The options are speak your truth and face a reprisal or bite your tongue and get ahead in life. It must be a strange life, always having permission to speak and feeling indignant when you're finally asked to listen. It stems from white people's never-questioned entitlement, I suppose. I could not continue to emotionally exhaust myself trying to get this message across, while also towing a very precarious line that tries not to implicate any one white person in their role of perpetuating structural racism, lest they character assassinate me. So I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I don't have a huge amount of power to change the way the world works, but I can set boundaries. I can halt the entitlement they spill towards me, and I'll start that by stopping the conversation. The balance is too far swung in their favour. Their intent is often not to listen or learn, but to exert their power, to prove me wrong, to emotionally drain me, and to rebalance the status quo. I'm not talking to white people about race unless I absolutely have to. If there's something like a media or a conference appearance that means that someone might hear what I'm saying and feel less alone, then I'll participate. But I'm no longer dealing with people who don't want to hear it, wish to ridicule it, and frankly, don't deserve it. Thank you. We, like, we, we, we almost like, started clapping. <laughs> like, like, ah! <laughs> so um, let's start by talking about that essay because that's, that's what the book sort of springs from. 
Can you talk a little bit about what made you write that in the first place? Well, uh, first off, it wasn't for want of trying. So it's not like one day I just woke up, apropos of nothing, was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not talking to white people. Uh, it's not like I wasn't provoked. <laughs> it was more um, that I was involved in sort of left and activist feminist circles um, who, amongst white dominated crowds of people who considered themselves to be very, very progressive um, and yet were absimil on this issue. They were absolutely awful. Uh, attempting to try and discuss race or racism around them or with them would lead them to feel very upset, angry and attacked and um, respond defensively in ways in which I think I outlined in that opening essay. And I was uh, like heavily involved in feminist activism at the time. You know, I was around that time, you know, I'd been involved in active feminist activism since I was 19. At that, by that point, I was in my early 20s. And, you know, women who I consider to be allies and, you know, sisters, that's very trite, isn't it? But um, would... I'd, I'd watch them change from we're in this together to you are the one being divisive. So in raising the problem of white dominance in a, pro in a progressive movement, I became the problem. And I was seeing this happen to, to other women of colour as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think I was somebody who, like, expected the best from people. Maybe I need to manage my expectations in that respect. But um, I was just so bitterly disappointed. And there are a couple of in, uh, situations, some of which I lay out in the book, one, particularly in the feminist cha feminism chapter that happened just about a month and a bit before I wrote that opening essay that was so disappointing, so devastating um, that I just sort of gave up. I said... What, which incident was this? Oh, so uh, it was an incident where I was asked to appear on a radio sh show alongside two um, white women who were feminists, Laura Bates of the Everyday Sexism Project and Caroline Criado-Perez, who had that year that was 2013, uh, campaigned heavily for w getting women on banknotes in which, so we did this uh, radio show together and um, because I was the only black person in the room, um, it was, the question was put to me, can you please define intersectionality? In and I said, well, feminism needs a race analysis, <laughs> right? I think that's quite important. A movement can't um, claim to be working on behalf of all women um, if if it's just not <laughs> analysing race in the, in the same way it's analysing gender. Um, and then Caroline Criado-Perez jumped in and said, yes, this is very important, but also this perspective has been used to bully me online, um, which led to a situation where by the end of that day, former uh, Member of Parliament Louise Mensch was saying, yes, Renny, you are a bully and aggressive. Um, and uh, though Caroline had apologised, there was a narrative sort of set there uh, by the end of that day, which was that I was some sort of aggressive interloper. I was seeing that in, f in feminist activism in particular again and again and again by raising some of the flaws of the movement, um, not from the outside by any means, but from somebody who at least I considered myself a committed activist by then, I became a problem in the movement. Um, and that made, left me very emotionally exhausted. It really did. And, you know, a month and a bit later, I I'd written this essay saying, absolutely, I cannot do this anymore. But what I did with the essay was not particularly name names or talk about particular situations. It was just sort of, it was quite vague in a way. It was about me, but for some reason it seemed very universal at the same, at the same time because you know, when I pressed publish, I had all sorts of different people from across the world get in contact and say, yes, I've definitely felt these feelings too. Um, thank you for articulating it. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to sort of travel as part of my work and 
I'm I still meet people in different countries who are like, oh gosh, yeah, I remember reading that. And I really resonated with it. And conversely, I'm also meeting people who are like, wow, that really changed my mind on this issue. So that's what really led to that opening essay. It was just um, a word vomit of total exhaustion, really. <laughs> it doesn't read like a word vomit. No, it doesn't at all. I, Kish, I was wondering if you have anything, any points to add on that. Well, I just feel like what you're, I feel like what's really interesting about what you're talking about there is partly the way in which in speaking up you endanger yourself and you are also transformed into this like angry black woman mm. and, like that's what it's easier for them to paint you in a certain light than to actually engage with what you're saying and mm. they don't realize how aggressive that is like how aggressive their treatment of you is by like characterizing you in, the, in that way and it's the same experience for any woman of color if you are speaking up about race when that falls to your shoulders to be the person speaking about it mm. and yet you are painted as angry and i feel like that's something that like that's partly why you read that post and you read the book and as a woman of colour you just have all this this stuff in your chest that just resonates because you know those feelings mm. like that feeling of like being made vulnerable by just standing up for yourself mm. by standing up for the kind of ideals that you believe in I think yeah and and in, in the book you talk about this um, I guess momentary retreat from that discourse with white people as an act mm. of self-preservation which is something that I think is really important actually to think about Sometimes silence is not a sign of weakness. It mm. can be like a very necessary self-care. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like to implement for that very reason. Because when you're, and, and what you say about, you know, these discourses, when they're happening across the racial divide, they're not happening from equal starting points at all. Mm. And I think white people really struggle with that concept. Um, and that, like what you describe, that, that um, experience with those other journalists it's yeah, it's very emblematic of of that exact power structure mm. being so shifted. Um, but yeah, I mean, as someone who who read the book and really enjoyed it, I'm really glad that you didn't remain silent, mm. you know, and that there was a way to kind of write this book um, because it, it raises so many really important points. As and as like a white British woman, for me, the history chapter was really important mm. because just learning how many stories there were that. I had no idea about, you know, mm. shamefully had no idea about that are just not included in our education system mm. here. Um, and I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that, like the research for that part of the book, the open, I mean, for listeners who've not read the book yet, mm. it's kind of the opening section. Yeah, definitely. I knew I had to contextualise um, the state of play. Uh, I was, I, I've been making these political arguments for a long time now, for a good few years, and I'm always, always met with sort of really fierce denials, often a repetitive sort of phrasing of, well, that's not really an issue in this country, you know, look at America, America's so much worse, blah, blah, blah. And I knew for a fact that that we had our own history in this country. I remember when I was at school, I was learning about Martin Luther King and uh, Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad and Rosa Parks, which is all very interesting and inspiring, but I was in South London, so... That that didn't feel very relevant to me in my world, but I was supposed to look up to them as a as a young black girl. But I I did some digging. I went down to the British Library. <laughs> <laughs> I went down to the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton, and I knew peripherally that these stories were out there. You know, for example, the Bristol bus boycott in the sixties, uh, where the trade union and the bus company. Um, basically had an informal agreement not to employ any black people and Paul Stevenson um, uh, uh, led a boycott um, of the whole entire bus service in the city uh, 
massive groundswell of support um, around the same time that um, Martin Luther King was making this I Have a Dream speech. And they actually, they changed that. Uh, you know, Harold Moody and the League of Coloured Peoples uh, in the early 20th century, which he's widely regarded as Britain's Martin Luther King. Why was that not on my curriculum? I, I knew that there were stories that perhaps local authorities were doing a good job of teaching particular kids in particular schools but they but these people weren't being recognized as national heroes in the same way as the states so I was getting this like exported understanding which then when I tried to call attention to issues of race and in this country race and racism in particular I was being told oh that's never really an issue here uh, the book in a lot of ways about silence and silencing um, in all sorts of different ways good and bad and I think that that sort of like complete collective forgetting of history is is absolutely a silencing that I wanted to call up again and you know in doing that research sometimes I thought to myself but this information is already out there like what what am I actually doing <laughs> Like people, if they wanted to know about it, they could find it out, sure. But but then I realised that has it been packaged together in, in this particular way? I thought it was really important to remind the British public. But actually what I'm finding is that the British public are telling me I didn't know about this, which means that something's gone wrong there, something's lost in translation. Why do so many people who live in this country who have all gone through the curriculum and many of whom have gone to university not know, not know about these stories. And so I did think it was my duty to situate all of my later political arguments in a broad historical context. And yeah, we could say it's rushed. Like I'm going from the early 20th century <laughs> right up until the 1980s. But I just wanted to pick out some key moments in in British history that were absolutely monumental for our understanding of race and race relations and also to really understand how structural racism really does go to the core of the of the British system and that we have to be absolutely honest about that. Yeah, I, I like that point that you make that it's embedded in our system. It's not mm. something that's sort of come from somewhere else. Mm. It's that it's been there all along um, in many different guises. And um, I wonder before we go ahead, I, I really like the way that you define structural racism and talk mm. about it and talk about why it's an issue. So how did you how did you decide to focus on that term and and how to define it. Okay, so full disclosure, I used to work at, at a race equality think tank. Uh, I was a, it was a, in a very lowly position, but what I saw there was that um, there was all this data being collated by government agencies um, that nobody was using uh, in a public-facing way in particular. So the Department for Education, the Census... Um, the Department for Work and Pensions, you know, the NHS, there'd be an inquiry here with this and that. They would collate, and in this country, unlike somewhere like France, for example, we actually do um, collect data on our citizens, including their race. And so you can get a pretty good understanding of how your race, as well as, let's say, your gender or, or other sort of characteristics of yourself, um, how, how life chances are affected essentially. So I looked at, you know, research published by the Department of Work for Education in particular. You know, sometimes periodically this research is uh, published in, you know, newspapers and stuff, but it's always sporadic. No one's ever like sort of sewing it together. That's what I try to do in the book. So we know that a black boy is three times as likely as the rest of his school population to be excluded from school. Um, that I couldn't believe that. I right. mean, I guess I could believe that, but to read it like mm. that is 
we we know that uh, that children in year six when they're taking their SATs, so the exams to take them into secondary school, are being chronically undermarked by their own teachers, um, and uh, that's something that's actually rectified by anonymous marking. So, so when somebody else looks at their papers, they they tend to get a higher grade. You know, everyone needs to go to school. Like we should expect that those. <laughs> That those institutions should um, be treating everybody the same. We should have a reasonable expectation of that. Um, universities in particular, universities are very good at sort of collating this data, not so good at acting on it, but that's another matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we know that black kids are actually much more likely to go into higher education, but much less likely to get into the, the country's best institutions. And when they are in university, um, they are much more likely to get some of the lowest grades um, we know that when it comes to employment in particular, people with African and Asian sounding names, this is research done by the Department for Work and Pensions in 2009, um, are far less likely to be called to interview um, when they're looking for jobs than their white British counterparts with white British sounding names um, who have basically like identical qualifications and experience. Um, we know that in the NHS, the David Bennett inquiry, which was that took place after a man named David Bennett in 2003 died in psychiatric care. The inquiry basically found that um, black people were much more likely to be um, diagnosed as schizophrenic, um, sectioned again, so basically detained against their will than white than white patients simply because of stereotypes around aggression and whatnot and the points that, that I'm trying to make there is that we you know we all need to go to school we all need to get a job if we wish to go to university we should expect meritocracy you know we should expect meritocracy in all of these um large institutions that can affect our life chances because you know if you're being chronically undermarked at school mm-hmm. um then whether or not you're a bright pupil, that's going to affect the secondary school that you go to and that's going to affect the university that you go to and that's going to affect the job you get and et cetera, et cetera. Um, housing as well is something else else that I uh, talk about in the book, which feels much more pertinent now with the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Um, over and over again, I saw that there was a systemic racial disadvantage like Mm. over and over again and what I wanted to do was knit that together over the lifespan of a hypothetical black boy Um, a boy in particular because it was really difficult to find gendered research on this Mm. Um, you you can see over and over again that there's that there is clear racial bias and that some people being disadvantaged and and the point that I make in the book is that the conclusion that I draw is not necessarily Oh, so that means that everybody works in schools and the NHS and everyone who's, you know, working on recruiting is a raving racist, um, loves the KKK, (laughs) is doing it because they hate people of colour. That's not the conclusion I draw. Many of these, well, first of all, we know for a fact that many people of all different races are working in these places um, and uh, and that many people don't consider themselves to be racist, yet the racial bias persists. And so it's not... it's not actually about morality or about good or bad people, but it's about something much more sophisticated than that. And the conversation about racism in general is still stuck on morality and whether or not that person's bad and a racist mm-hmm. rather than actually stuck on, rather than on action. Okay. How can we actually challenge this bias? Like what strategies can we put into place to um, engender or foster meritocracy? Um, and that's really troubling. Could you talk a bit more about quotas and, and things like that? Because mm. I thought you had a lot of really interesting things to say about it in the book. Well, I think that people want to believe in meritocracy. Mm. I mean, uh, this is sort of the legacy of, you know, 30 years of 
Thatcher's ideology. People really want to believe that if you just work really hard, then you will achieve what you wish to in life and that nobody really has an obligation to anybody else. Just work really hard and look after you, yourself and your own in your immediate patch. And, um, and so because, you know, I tried to really understand the positions of, of those who I disagree with. And in this respect, I really think that they believe in meritocracy. And so they think that any... They don't recognise that we're living in a status quo that is very, very structurally unequal. Mm -hmm. So any effort to attempt to try and redress the balance, they think that that is actually the real discrimination mm -hmm. because they don't they believe deeply that we live in a meritocracy because everything went fine for them or they worked really hard and that's okay fine if you want to believe that but i i i have issues with basing your political position on ignorance and mm -hmm. i do think that that's a political position based on ignorance um you know in that belief of meritocracy if you want to believe that to me that is a tacit implication that when we look at um the corridors of power in whatever industry or sector that you want to speak of, and you see basically all the middle-aged men who are all white, then you're telling me that that's where merit lies. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I just don't believe that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> like, I don't believe that merit is only inhabited in the bodies of older, wealthy white guys. Yeah. I just don't believe it. Actually, I think that there are forces at play that are locking out merit. Um, at, so they're there at the expense of others. That's what I think. Um, and... I don't think that's particularly radical to say. Look, you walk down the street. Mm -hmm. You see people of all different shapes, mm -hmm. sizes, colours, whatever. Are you really telling me that there's only one specific specific demographic of society that is talented enough to reach those positions? I see, you know, things like racism and sexism as a, a real inhibitor of equality of opportunity. I think that's the really interesting thing in the book when you're speaking about white privilege and you mm. have that really simple definition, which is that whiteness if you are a white person then your race will positively benefit you in your lifetime mm -hmm. like that is the kind of very simple kind of understandable definition of white privilege mm -hmm. but in a similar way to that you're that you've been speaking about that people are resistant to even examining or uh, kind of even being open to the fact they might have unconscious bias they don't even want to examine their white privilege mm -hmm. you know like they that is also completely off like hands off and they don't want to discuss that and i think the way that you go into that in the book is really interesting as mm -hmm. well I mean, I think you, you've got to look at it like a relationship. So mm. I never think that things are just coincidental, mm. you know. So well, it might be a widely held belief that it, there is institutional racism in this country. Okay, so it's embedded into institutions and some people are working to overcome that. But if some people are being marginalised, then other people must be benefiting from it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not... Yeah. I don't think yeah. it's radical to suggest that, you know, you, I think that this is very pertinent as well with questions about women in the workplace so if some people are being marginalized then it's for a reason it's got a political purpose um let's be let's be honest about that not let's not pretend keep pretending that these are isolated incidents um mm. and that actually everybody is ultimately good because okay everyone might be ultimately good but still the structure is marginalizing some to the benefit of others and when i say to the benefit of others what i'm not arguing is um that all white people are living in laps of luxury. And, <laughs> oh, so shopping at Howard's every day, being fed grapes in a hotel room by a Greek Adonis. That's not really what I'm arguing. Uh, what I am saying that um, if some people are, so for example, with the African and Asian sounding names being um, looked at less in terms of recruitment than people with white British sounding names, 
it means that white people white people are literally benefiting from that you know or at least people with white british sounding names are benefiting from that and in that um you know i've used the phrase white mediocrity before and it's somehow somehow controversial but i do think that if let's say in the cv situation people with white british sounding names are being basically receiving preferential treatment then of course some white some mediocrity is going to slip through the net yeah. It's just look at the numbers of it, you know. Yeah. It does mean that some people get to fail upwards um, yeah. because they embody competence in a way that others don't, regardless of the actual talent at hand here. Mm. Yeah, and you point out that the flip side of that is also that when people of color do succeed, they're accused of succeeding because they've been given a leg up because of mm. the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You know, again, if you look at the timeline of of research that I put together that shows about how people's life chances in particular are affected by racism. Um, It goes, I think it goes to show that people of colour who succeed despite those very poor odds are probably exceptional, (laughs) you know, probably exceptional uh, Mm -hmm. and probably more talented than, than their white counterparts in the same sphere. Yet uh, the atmosphere is one of, well, you're only here because you're not white. Mm. Um, nobody ever says to white people in all white, high, high-powered offices, you're only here because you're white. Mm-hmm. But they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, other factors, of course, but, you know, there's that recruitment term, a right fit, yeah. which, uh, or a culture fit. Mm. And, I, and I, I think that hides a lot of discrimination. Absolutely. Mm. And you talk in the book about... Um, current Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott mm. and the whole online furore with her what, um, divide and rule tweet and things. Mm. And um, and that was, you know, before knowing that she would be campaigning in the general election that just happened. Mm. And obviously, you know, Diane Abbott gets a hard time fairly consistently from mm. many different corners of the political spectrum. Mm. Um, but I wonder, do you, you know, how do you, what do you think about the way that she was treated this time around? You know, do you feel mm. like it was just the same thing all over again? Or, or like, is the discussion moving to a place that's of more nuance, do you reckon? I thought it was admirable that she spoke out about it. I don't yeah. want to be reductive and say every time somebody criticises her, it's because of racism and sexism. But I do think that she receives a disproportionate amount of criticism and that's certainly an undercurrent. And I think that we should all be able to hold our politicians to account. But um, the way in particular, I think that the Conservative Party really zeroed in on her as an individual rather than her policies in the final days of that general election was very disturbing. Yeah, that nasty negative campaigning Um Let's do a like for like comparison. Okay, so she fluffs some lines. Boris Johnson Boris says Johnson. says <laughs> rubbish all the time. Like, how can he be God. foreign secretary? He's not very diplomatic. He's he's <laughs> he's, he's very good at going abroad and offending people. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so well, there we have a real like for like comparison of of two people who have definitely fluffed interviews and said stupid things and. Um, you just don't see the same vitriol mm. yeah. directed mm. at him. With him, it's charming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, he's bumbling. He's silly, <laughs> you yeah. know. But with her, it's she's incompetent. Yeah, or she's angry, you mm. know. And that, that again, that stereotype of the angry black woman mm. who dares to speak out, often not even about race, actually. You mm. know, that she's, yeah. And, you know, in answer to your question about, you know, what is the future I want? I want one in which black people can mess up and... Uh, they don't get disproportionate flat for it. Yeah, <laughs> you know that sounds entirely reasonable. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying that people of color uh, are angels or saints or never at fault and never 
never should be at the receiving end of criticism. But it's like, can they do that? Can black mm. people even just be mediocre? And that's cool, right. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And nobody's giving them flack for it. It's like, it's what it's wild. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the question of equality on all fronts, isn't it? Mm. It's like, that's what true equality means. Mm. That everyone has equal chance to be fabulous, but also mediocre and disgusting and mm. all of the other possible things. And when you think of it in those terms, you realise how far we are from any kind of equality mm. in our society. Just to end, I think there is a sort of hopeful note at the end of the book mm. w- w- where you're saying just do something about this. Mm. Um, you know, um, and I, I was wondering how how much pressure you felt to be a little bit hopeful at the end. Um, with it's because I, you know, I work in publishing, Kish works in publishing. Mm. I think there is a lot of direction where if you're writing something depressing or angry, people Mm. will be like, well, why don't you just inject a note of hope in there? Mm. Um, Is that like, do you really think that somebody doing something, no matter how small is going to change things? Or is it more complicated than that? I had some sort of conflict right in the end of the book because I knew that white readers upon reading the book were going to be like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Please guide me by the hand. Give me the answers. (laughs) And so what I wanted to do was prompt white readers in particular because despite the title, I know that as soon as a white person sees the cover, they're like, ooh, what's this? (laughs) Like magpie-like. That they'll be feeling perhaps an empathetic white person might be feeling all torn up or what can I do? And what I wanted to do was prompt a self-reflection, particularly if, if you're in a position where you, you can actually influence things or at least analyze institutional racism in whatever space that you inhabit um, and then attempt to try and address it. That's what I really wanted to to do. Um, So I suppose that's why I write that. But also what I wanted to write in, at the end of the book for people of colour in particular who were feeling very exhausted was that it's okay to set boundaries. That's okay. Um, setting boundaries is very important and a, and a healthy part of being a human being. And, and I feel like it's important not to feel dragged into um, conversations that sometimes you just don't want to have because you feel like you're just defending your humanity here and that's, that's demeaning and that you don't actually have to do it. You don't have to be the advocate. I I will do that via this book as a tool. Um, and I always thought to myself, you know, long, long before the book existed, that if it did exist, the next time somebody tried to argue with me, I could be like, sixty ninety nine, your local independent bookshop, please, if you want to know what I think about this, that, or the other, there's your reference point, leave me alone. <laughs> um, and so... I mean, I also write in the preface, you know, I hope that you use this as a tool. And, and I do see this book as a tool. You know, it's a it's a hammer. It's a it's a thing that people can use to use for themselves in their lives. And I get reports of people are doing that. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know about hope. I, I think that the, the ending is also kind of a bit vague, maybe for uh, an important reason, that being that. You know, when people say to me, what can I do? It's like, well, I don't know you and your life. So you're going to go away and have to do the thinking there. I've done quite a bit of thinking for this book, but this is a relationship after all. Um, Yeah, but it was difficult to sum up, I think. But but ultimately, you know, there's there's another line in the book in which I paraphrase a friend, you know, in which she says structures are made out of people. Mm -hmm. Um, We're all part of this. We all all have a stake and... um, 
and I really do want to win hearts and minds with this and and re- really reiterate to people that this problem is absolutely made by people and can be dismantled by people if we are if we're all if we're all in on it you know if we all decide one day okay we don't like this anymore yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> we want to change it I'm feeling fired up yeah um Thank you so much, Renny, for coming in. Thank Thanks you, for having Kish, me. for being here as well. <laughs> Thanks for having um, me. It's so uh, the book is called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. It is available in your local independent bookshop. Yeah, support the indies. As you said. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you. Okay, I'm back here with Kashani and Octavia to talk about race in Britain. This is a giant, important, essential topic, and we are only going to brush the surface. Is that a? Is that, can you say brush the surface? Yeah, you can say brush the surface. Okay, yeah, I My, think so. Yeah, I always say the wrong um, aphorisms because you're I- idioms. No, no, it's just because I'm an idiot. Um, (laughs) um, But I think what we want to talk about right now is just sort of introducing the topic, talking about resources where people can educate themselves more um, for, you know, also acknowledge that Octavia and I are the problem here and we are just being (laughs) humble and trying to learn more and trying to think more about this because Mm. it feels really important. And I feel that even more strongly after reading Reddy's book. book. Yeah, me too. But I think also, you know, when we were discussing how to put this chat together, you know, that it, it's easy to go down the rabbit hole of talking about the sort of horrible, violent, shameful, colonial and imperial past in literature in the UK. And mm-hmm. actually, you guys can find that out for yourselves. That's mm-hmm. not what it's important to give space to. So we're not going to talk about, you know, those texts like Robinson Crusoe and Treasure Island and blah, blah, blah. We want to focus on what's actually happening right now in this discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, let's hit it (laughs) yeah yeah so should we start by talking about maybe fiction and poetry what what, you know why we think these mediums are important first of all to discuss race what they can Mm -hmm. do what they can't do and then we can talk about some some books that we think are sort of leading the the discussion right now so Mm -hmm. kish do you Um, want to start it off yeah i think that like i think that literature is obviously really important for like portraying uh, varieties of human experience and um, subjectivities and like I think that that's like especially where uh, portrayals of race and literature is re- are really important both for people of colour and also white white people as well to having like a different understanding like I know for like for, for me personally I've learned so much more about different subjective experiences like I wouldn't know what it's like to be like a black person in America like I wouldn't have known anything about that until reading like Ta-Nehisi Coates or reading like um or reading citizen like those books are really important for communicating that experience like in a way that's very vivid and very real and is like much more powerful sometimes than reading like stats or something that's like a you know like a polemic yeah definitely Um, yeah it makes it live right yeah absolutely my kind of touch point for this is benjamin zephaniah yeah who i have i've had this his album reggae head on my um itunes for a long time and mm. it like you know when you put it on shuffle and you, you kind of and it's that amazing thing of spoken word poetry the way that it sort of sits between rhythm and music and mm-hmm. um and polemic text mm-hmm. and he you know his his poetry 
he would he describes it as kind of influenced by street politics and mm -hmm. it's very much for anyone who doesn't know um you know his goal was to reclaim poetry from the elitist establishment and like to take it out of the academy and take mm -hmm. it away from this like yeah. stuffy kind of bo bollocks um and uh interestingly his he was first published by page one books with a small east london publishing cooperative mm -hmm. and that was back in the 80s mm -hmm. um and i think that's also a really important point that actually books like the good immigrant for example mm -hmm. you know they're they're still turning to less traditional publishing methods yeah, in order absolutely. to get out there because as we often acknowledge on the show like the publishing industry in this country yeah is not very open yeah and is white as fuck right yeah. it's um, so that whole thing of how these different voices come to the surface and become become find themselves on a platform where they're reaching other people. The other name I, I kept thinking of was Lem Sisse, mm -hmm. who, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. is a really kind of illustrious figure now. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually wrote a stage adaptation of Benjamin Zephaniah's novel, Refugee mm -hmm. Boy. So they're, you know, they're in dialogue with one another as well. But he's another, he's a poet and a dramatist and an author. Um, who, like Zephaniah, relates his very personal experience to the wider political discourse, mm -hmm. which I think is, like you were saying, it's like the way in to that kind of understanding. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think, you know, to build on Kish's point, is that literature is a way of expressing really complex ideas mm -hmm. as well. It's, a, you know, we always talk about literature as a sort of empathy machine, which I, which I think is true, but it's also, you know, race is really complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think... In, maybe in some ways novels can encapsulate that mm -hmm. better than a lot of other mediums. Um, I think like, yeah, there's like obviously lots of purposes to it. Like there's, you know, you have those books that have that activist sensibility that are obviously like arguing for something and making a point. And there are other books, which I feel like are just much more about representation. Like, you know, like you, like as a person of color or an author of color, you don't have to, always be fighting for something in your books you can just be representing like a lived experience like yes my race is part of my experience but like that doesn't mean I'm always fighting like you know it's that whole that whole dialogue as well which is obviously incredibly powerful and that's also what is really amazing in those books that represent race in Britain that we have all been dis like discussing before even today like when we talk about Zadie Swift and Monica Ali and like you know like even like early Hanif Qureshi and um a lot of the younger poets today who are working like Bridget Minamore and you know Octavia Poetry Group like they are also just talking about their lives they're just talking about lives um and you're representing the lives of people of color in our in a like in a world in which it's you have to find those representations because then the majority of representations are not people of color yeah. so yeah it's true i was just thinking about you know, when we're trying to talk about it in the context of Britain, mm -hmm. and like you say, like, Octavia, I, I think they're rad not just because we have the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. Um, and we, we actually, when we did an interview for um, Orlando Magazine, they, yeah. they were part of the same issue, and we got, you know, got to see some of them at the opening show, which was really cool. Yeah. But this thing about um, what Rennie talks about in her book as well, that we're, the, the major discourse on race still seems to be coming out of America. And yeah. that in this country, yeah. we're still, you know, just waking up to it, it yeah. seems like in the wider discourse and I, I don't know I wonder, wonder what you guys think about that yeah well it was interesting to me and I think this is something that Rennie talks about in her book growing up in America it's just part of the curriculum mm -hmm. in school that you learn about the civil rights struggle you read books about you know you read Invisible Man you mm. read 
um, James Baldwin. You read you read mm. all of these seminal texts, the souls of black folk, all, all, yeah. you know, and and you think about racism. Uh, that's not to say that racism doesn't exist in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, racism is a, a scourge on that um, on that country. And slavery is a legacy that continues to this day. And it's horrible. But it, it did seem to be more of a dialogue. And I got here and I had a lot of people tell me, first of all, that racism was a prob- wasn't a problem in Britain. Oh, my God. And it's just the yeah, wildest. And, and second of all, that um, which is something, again, that Rennie addresses in her book is that class is the main issue here. Mm. Um, and I think what's really great about Rennie's book, I think what's good about what's happening in publishing now is that people are starting to acknowledge that it is really an issue. Um, and that more books by, by writers of color featuring people of color, all of those things need to be published and that we need to start a dialogue about this. Yeah. I feel like that there is, I think there's been like a really long dialogue around race in the UK, like obviously to do with colonialism and like post Windrush like the British Caribbean arts movement like there there ha- it has been happening but it hasn't been it only kind of seems to come into the mainstream when current events push it there yeah and like you when... pointed to a great um piece uh mm. on the BBC just detailing yeah, 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 that yeah. that whole history yeah, which yeah, yeah. which we read in preparation for yeah, this which, which is, is really useful to yeah. seek out and we'll link to that on yeah, on Twitter you know like there's like this you know like new beacon books and like publishing figures like Margaret Busby like there have been people building and creating their own spaces and taking up space in British publishing for years but like it's not part of the dominant narrative so people don't know you have to like fight and seek it out you have to like find these people and find this history yeah well it's mad when you think about I mean I went to school in England Mm. and the curriculum you know I did English to GCSE level and the curriculum was essentially I mean we'd studied To Kill a Mockingbird Mm -hmm. apart from that it was all white writers Mm -hmm. usually men also you know Mm. I mean, I'm quite old now, though. So no, but that's, yeah. that was my experience as well. Like, and that's what's really interesting but that Rennie talks about in her book as well is she talks about decolonizing her own learning. And that's something that, but, you know, like, and that's something that's completely erasable, even like just as like a white woman. It's like you have to like, you have to kind of undo the patriarchal learning that you have done. Like that is something we are always in process of doing. It's like fi- like finding the writers that represent us that reflect our experience and that's something you have to do in the UK as well and I think that's really beautifully expressed in, yeah, yeah, she, in Rennie's book she really knows it you're right yeah. yeah and like I also think like to a certain degree so, like because we live in like a kind of like white supremacist society like I don't know if that, that's quite a controversial thing to say or not it's not controversial to me but there will be times in which it's represented by the mainstream where the mainstream picks this up but there will always be stuff happening way outside of the mainstream. Like, and that's what, you know, you guys have spoken about with the Good Immigrant book, like with Sabrina Mahfouz's book, like Things I Would Tell You, which is, you know, um, writing with Muslim women, with like Gal Demzine, with Octavia, with like Media Diversified, do loads of work around this, Ash Sakra and Ovara. These are all people outside of the mainstream who are doing work around race and also just like representing like just like carefree people of color like living great lives but also doing that kind of like activist work like whether it's like non-fiction journalism or whether it's kind of creative expression and there will always be those spaces outside of the mainstream and like they are there you might not know they're there but they're there yeah so let's very quickly as as ever we are running race, out of race, time race. <laughs> <laughs> um let's very quickly talk about specific books that we wanted to recommend. Okay. So maybe Octavia, do you want to go first? Yes, I'm going to go first and I'm going to do this very quickly because of time. But also I've talked about this book before and everyone in this room loves this book. It's Citizen, an American yeah. Lyric by Claudia Rankine, which Carrie, you actually gave me, you wonderful creature. And um, and I was 
all up about it when when I first read it, but it remains the most affecting, powerful text that I've read about race as a polemic. Um, and I think about it constantly. Still, it's incredibly memorable. It's it's also just a, a really a really exquisite piece of text. What it's doing in its um, it's almost like a documentary, but it's written. It's a poem, but it's also a book. It's deconstructing things it's also angry it's very intelligent it's very emotional it's very personal it's very political it's like basically everything I ever want from a book mm. um but her voice is just extraordinary and I think you know it it represented a really necessary but very natural like explosion of taking up some space mm -hmm. and she really is a phenomenal voice and such a wonderful mind so yeah I'm just going to read this tiny um, little line from it which is because white men can't police their imagination black men are dying mm -hmm. which is so powerful and yeah. so simple linguistically yeah. but it like and I think that's it. one isn't it one page of the book or yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is it because the layout and it she includes images and she the text gets broken down in different ways but it's really it's about everyday sex everyday sexism sorry mm -hmm. and, uh, well also sexism but everyday racism Mm -hmm. and that microaggressions and acts of microaggression that people of color suffer daily and I think for a white person reading that whether or not you have become aware of these issues it opens your eyes in a really really meaningful way because she's writing from inside the physical experience as mm -hmm. well as the emotional and political experience so if you haven't read it read it and then read everything else by her because she's a phenomenal voice. Kish, can we have your recommendation? Yeah, I just also would love to say, like, I love Citizen as well. And it's such a pleasure to hear people speak about it always. Um, so I really wanted to recommend Jean Rees' White Sargasso Sea. So Dominican-born author Jean Rees had been living in obscurity in Devon when this was, in, when this was published in 1966. Um, it's a post-colonial novel, which is sort of a prequel to Jane Eyre and also in dialogue with it. Tells the story of the first Mrs. Rochester, who in Jane Eyre we meet as the mad woman in the attic, Bertha. Novel traces the story of Antoinette, a fair-skinned, impoverished Creole heiress in post-emancipation Jamaica, who marries a wealthy, in the novel, unnamed Englishman, who slowly brutalises her, sets on overwhelming her identity, renames her the prosaic Bertha, declares her mad, and forces her to relocate to England. Um, I studied Jane Eyre at school and adored it, and then came across Jean Rees in my early 20s, and this book blew my mind. It basically completely flipped the script on the Victorian novel I'd loved and opened my eyes to... I guess, like a real decolonial text. Um, it's a slip of a novel, but manages to take in Victorian paternalism, patriarchal power, um, colonialism, trauma migration, pressure assimilation, complex socio-political history of Amen. the West Indies. Like, it does so much. And all in the most gorgeous spare prose. It's utterly chilling. I feel like this is the book that will save book-loving people of colour from their, like, white, white patriarchal curriculum. Um there's also like a really oppressive heat in the novel and mm. I feel like that kind of makes it the perfect subversive beach read considering that we're coming into summer. So yeah. I really can't like push it enough. No, it's wow. amazing. And I, I got goosebumps. Yeah, what an amazing recommendation. <laughs> I feel it's a phenomenal really roused. I've not, I've not read it. Girl, you get oh, on that shit. I know, also, I know. It's I really love it. short. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's good in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going on holiday soon, so maybe I'll, yeah. I'll take it and She's report back. She's one of back. our treasures, I think, really. Yeah. She's one of our true treasures. Cool. Well, I want to recommend a completely different book, um, a nonfiction book. It is called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. It was published in 2010. And I think I got it as a gift for Christmas. I'm not much of a reader of history books, mm -hmm. actually. Um, but my mother gave this to me. And it had just 
phenomenal reviews all over the back and it sounded really interesting. So so I started reading it and I really couldn't stop. It's the story of the Great Migration in America, which was when between the years of 1915 and 1970, six million African-Americans left the South in search of a better life, um, both in the Midwest and the West. And it's really an unknown history. Um, it's a migration that, you know, we know all about the Dust Bowl, Bowl in America. We don't really know much about the fact that all of these people picked up their lives and left and changed the face mm. of America. That's a vast number. Yeah. And it's it's a really riveting story. She she tells it sort of through three stories of different people who she's researched meticulously, who enacted this journey in different ways. You know, a sharecropper from Mississippi, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, it in addition to being about human lives, it's about, of course, race, um, the horrible Jim Crow laws, all of those ideas, mm -hmm. patriarchal society. You know, she she managed to encapsulate mm -hmm. all these ideas, yeah. but with a really human face. And and I think it's it's a brilliant history it that I would recommend to anyone. Really good. It sounds amazing. That's a really it's a that's a really nice trio of books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> good job, okay. ladies. <laughs> well, we will be back in a minute with our other book recommendations with Renietta Lodge. Okay, we are back with Kish and Rennie to give our book recommendations for this week. So, Octavia, do you want to start? Always. Um, I am recommending a book called Mislaid by Nell Zink, which you actually gave me, Carrie, and I finally got around to reading. I'm, I haven't finished it yet. I actually I have haven't read it, which admit. is maybe bad. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't admit that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're all about truth on this show. I haven't finished it yet, so um, it could all go tits up in the second half, but th thus far, I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, and actually, it kind of... All, almost accidentally fits with the theme because one of its main conceits is looking at um, racial identity in America. And it's this very ca caustic critique of it, basically. Um, the plot is, it's a, a kind of inverted campus novel where um, an awkward lesbian student named Meg gets impregnated by her gay poetry professor. Um, <laughs> so already you're coming in at it with like a fuck <laughs> all of this kind of attitude. Um, their relationship goes terribly badly. They have a second child anyway. And then Meg flees with just the older child, the daughter, and goes off grid to try and escape. Um, his family, her family, everybody. And she adopts these new names for both of them, which are tied to African-American identities. So it's this kind of making the point that if you want to disappear, become non-white, because we live in a culture that doesn't see people who are not white, especially women. That You know, this kind of the, the hunt for the two missing white women is something that is like a big cultural discourse narrative. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's kind of as far as I've got to. Um, but it's it's funny. It's deadpan. It's really uh, brutal in places with her kind of critique. But I actually think she writes with a lot of empathy at the same time. Um, the narrative voice at one point declares its own protagonist to be a shallow smart ass, which is exactly what she is. She is very shallow. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's I, wor I worry sometimes with Zink when I'm reading her that her writing is going to be a bit cold. But I, I actually don't find it that way at all. And it makes she's very funny. So I've been laughing out loud. Um, but as I said, it could go tits up in the second half. Um, but yeah, she, she's definitely not a romantic. So that's like the bottom line. She's not romantic about people. She's not romantic about structures. It's just like bam, 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 bam. So there, there we go. Big recommendation from <laughs> me. Cool. <laughs> I'll have to read it. Um, Kish, do you want to give your recommendation? Um, so I was going to recommend something else, but actually I feel very inspired from our conversation to recommend Sarah Ahmed's book, Living a Feminist Life, 
which I think is like a really wonderful companion book to your book, Rennie, mm. um, as a feminist. So Sarah Ahmed kind of has rose, risen to greater notoriety in the UK since resigning from Goldsmiths in the wake of uh, like a um, sexual harassment scandal that was kind of mishandled by the university. So she resigned in protest and she's written this book, which is called Living a Feminist Life, which is about the way in which a lot of really wonderful feminist theory can come out of the academy but can kind of get strangled in the academy but and also conversely how a lot of wonderful feminist theory can come out of just like living the life of a feminist so she kind of writes these few, like a few chapters going through all these different ideas and also um, expanding on her concept of the feminist killjoy um, and just like Rennie's book it kind of acts as like a place of solace as a decolonizing text as a handbook and as kind of like has a manifesto like a kind of call to arms um there's a bit in it where she speaks about uh the work of diversity and um like doing the work of diversity is partly doing things in terms of like stirring things up creating those arguments doing work like writing articles writing books creating a disruption and then part of and the other work of diversity is just being a diverse or a person of colour in spaces in which you are not naturally welcome or are not naturally belonging to you. Mm. So as like Rennie as a journalist being in a space, ju just that in itself is disruptive. Um, and I just find like all of those arguments really fascinating and considering you have this chapter critiquing feminism and its failings in terms of incorporating a racial analysis, mm. she's really, really wonderful at melding all those things together and also a queer analysis as well. So yeah, I really recommend that. That book. sounds rad. Really amazing. I read about her um, yeah. in Goldsmiths. I didn't know she'd written a book though. Mm. Yeah, she's amazing. Rennie. Okay, I've got two recommendations, but one of them's for a book that's not out yet. So I don't know, can yeah, I speak just go Exclusive, go do, yeah. it, okay, do it, do right. it. So basically, uh, you know, Silver Press, they literally just started existing very recently tiny feminist publisher um they're publishing a book of um audrey lord's um like poetry and essays and i'm reading like a super duper exclusive <laughs> manuscript <laughs> i was gonna say because i have it on pre-order so i yeah. can't wait for it yeah. to arrive and you you make the point that she's never been published in the uk yeah, yeah exactly book, which is crazy yeah, yeah. i have yeah. no idea absolutely mad so i'm reading super duper exclusive essays uh that i don't know maybe they'll be annoyed with me for talking about this i don't know if you've no, got it on pre-order no. then that means that, that means that the public knows that it, it's, it's no, about to exist. Yeah, it's like, coming i think it might be out next year no, it's not sure. this year. Oh, perfect, year. perfect. Anyway, so that's really interesting to read. Um, some, I think, I, I'm thinking a lot about the parallels between what she's been writing about and what I'm re writing about. I know that she's definitely been an influence on my work, but she's got this essay called Your Silence Will Not Protect You, um, which I had a, a journalist, Anita Sethi, who writes a lot for um, The Guardian of the Observer. I did an interview with her and she... she reiterated some of the themes of the book that I didn't realise existed, including, you know, silence and silencing and whatnot. And so it was really interesting to read this essay, Your Silence Will Not Protect You, in light of what Anita had said to me. Um, and she speaks really about the fact that, you know what, you're going to get flack whether you speak or not. So <laughs> you really may as well. And that really uh, resonates with me. But also she writes uh, a lot as from the perspective of a mother and being a feminist mother and raising being a feminist lesbian mother and raising a teenage boy and and that's really interesting i think particularly for somebody i mean she's she's passed unfortunately but for somebody who has taken this very like lives a very feminist life mm -hmm. you know very very woman centered woman focused um to suddenly 
find herself in the position of raising a man or somebody who's, you know, at the age of 14, posturing, trying to explore what it means to be a man. Really, really interesting insights and and perspective that I've never really considered before. And so my other recommendation based on this super duper exclusive manuscript is <laughs> it's a book that is already out. Um, I, I think it came out at the, uh, the beginning of June um, by the poet, I'm going to butcher his name, Keo Chigoni, right? Chiong, right. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, his um, book, Kumakanda, it's like a very, very small, slim, um, like book of poetry, um, also tackles the, those... Um, themes uh, basically being a, a young man being a young black man um from from the perspective of the person who is actually the young black man not the mother of him um, and, and i was introduced to his work because um my friend the poet bridget, bridget minimore a few years ago she was like okay ready you have to come and see chaos work like see him perform live because this is poem that i think you'll really really like it was called calling a spade a spade which also makes it into um this book of poetry in which he basically he talks about racism and with the same sort of like frustration that I was feeling at the time, which was why is nobody um, why is nobody being honest about this? Um, and so I would really recommend his um, uh, book of poetry as well, Kumakanda, which is out now. You could definitely go and buy that and and um, hold up for the Silver Press uh, publication. It. Yeah, pre-order it, pre-order it because I can tell you it's going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> Those both then. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I'm going to recommend a book that I also haven't finished yet. So again, like you said, it might go tits up, but I, I, I have a feeling it probably won't. Um, it's called First Love by Gwendolyn Riley, um, which she's been on the scene for a while. She's been writing books for 15 years now. Um, and I have to admit, I hadn't even heard of her, but um, she's just moved publishers, I think, um, to, yeah. to Granta. And I basically couldn't ignore this book. I was recommended it so many times that final, finally I just like relented and had to read it just to sort of join the conversations of my friends. Um, and so the, the book is about basically a toxic marriage. Um, it's told from the perspective of a younger woman, Neve, who has married an older man called Edwin, um, which has a lot of resonance with a lot of the books we've been doing on the show. I was just thinking lately, that. Um, including Emer McBride um, and Sally Rooney, who we just had on the show. And I don't know whether we're just fascinated by novels about young women having older relationships. Are you just saying that we've got massive daddies? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, um, I, I do love a, a, a sort of close read of a relationship book. And this mm. is definitely it. I mean, it's really uncomfortable. It's not easy to read. And um, this character is th constantly throws herself into situations that are awkward and uncomfortable and questionable, um, including this relationship with a man who really, you know, um, emotionally abuses her. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I don't I it's it's making me think a lot about the choices that we make and why we make them and sort of the the potency in the everyday interactions we have with people. Um, I think she's a really, she's just an incredibly gifted writer and it's, you know, it's uncomfortable, but it's also just compelling. I, mm -hmm. I can't stop reading it. So I'd really, really recommend it. And Bailey shortlisted. Yes. Bailey shortlisted. <laughs> Although it didn't win. I predicted it would win. Actually. I did it one pound bet. Which <laughs> <laughs> didn't come true. Carrie, you have to commit a little bit harder. Yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> Stakes aren't very high. <laughs> okay, thanks everyone. That's a great recommendation. Mm -hmm.
That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our guests, Rennie Edo-Lodge and Kashani Widiaratna, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please say hi. We love to hear from you. Yes. Um, and we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt and this is Literary, Literary Friction. Friction.